Welcome to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. I am Jason Kong. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend. I am here with Bill Alexander, and it's Memorial Day weekend. Bill, it's the the unofficial start of summer. How are you doing? Uh, well, it's it is definitely my start of summer, uh, <laughs> Jason. And obviously, Memorial Day is one of those weekends where folks uh, do travel uh, more. Uh, and uh, you know, for a lot of us, this is a weekend to, to get away and and enjoy because we've been cooped up for seems like forever at this point. But you know, Memorial Day is a special, or Memorial Weekend and Memorial Day uh, is a special time that uh, for remembrance. And it's it's um, it's not Veterans Day. It's not uh, a time to thank veterans for serving. It's a time for remembering those veterans who gave the ultimate sacrifice, those who basically gave their lives uh, for us and our freedom and our way of life, um, which is so important to all of us. Uh, So it's you know, when you're talking about that kind of sacrifice, uh, it, it is a time where we should, as a family, stop at least for a moment while, you know, during the times that we can enjoy embracing our family and enjoying the weekend, we should stop at least for a moment to thank those uh, folks who did give the ultimate sacrifice and their families, you know, they don't get to hug uh, their uh, uh, veteran, if you will, um, who's not here anymore because of giving the ultimate sacrifice. So it is worthy of our time to stop uh, and give thanks uh, for those members of the military service who um, basically gave us our way of life and defended our way of life so that it it can continue uh, on, uh, not just for us, but for our children and grandchildren and, and hopefully for many, many uh, generations after that. Very well said, Bill. And that's, uh, again, something that we do hope we all take a a little bit of time out this weekend to reflect on that and to make sure that we do recognize those who, as you said, gave the ultimate sacrifice. And, Bill, we're going to talk about Well, I mean, after you do that, and then it's time to go jump in the swimming pool or, you know, enjoy (laughs) each other and and the like. This is not a – yes, there is time for remembrance, but it's also time to – to make new memories. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Bill, uh, you've got an interesting uh, item here on the docket, and you want to talk about some quirky laws here in North Carolina. Well, it, all states, including North Carolina, has quirky laws. A- and uh, North Carolina certainly has its share. Uh, and you have to realize that when you cross state lines, yes, we do have a uh, federal laws, and we have a seamless uh uh, uh, boundaries, if you will, where we can travel anywhere in the United States without uh, uh, going through roadblocks and the like. Uh, but the, we need to acknowledge the fact that uh, where we live uh, does make a difference because laws are different from state to state, sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's important to recognize. And, and of course, as 
uh, as you know, um, uh, I like to talk about asset protection, and uh, quirky laws do affect asset protection. And of course, my focus has always been North Carolina and North Carolina laws. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm coming up on my 45th anniversary of practicing law in North Carolina, which is, I think, is pretty cool. <laughs> that that anniversary is actually in August, so I have a couple months to go. But uh, but you know, that's to me, that's now I I don't have any intention of stopping. I love what I do. Uh, I'm hoping to go way past 50 years of, of uh, law practice for sure. But uh, but it is nice nice to think back. Uh, and I'm and quite frankly, thinking back, I can think about how life has changed and laws have changed over that that period of time. Back in the dark ages, when I started practicing law, we were still using carbon paper and typewriters. We, in fact, we didn't, uh, the, the first uh, technological advance uh, that uh, we uh, ever bought in our uh, law firm early on was, was uh, a Xerox machine. You know, you know uh, photocopiers, uh, when they first came out, were called Xerox machines. And that, <laughs> but we were still using onion paper and, and uh, uh, and carbon paper and the like, and, and you know, people just—I I mean, young people have no clue what that is. But, <laughs> but, uh, but those those were the times, and so you know, shoot, young people today, uh, you know, high school graduates don't even know what it, life was like before cell phones. Uh, so. Uh, wow, <laughs> but but let's talk about the quirky laws. Now, some of these things I've talked about uh, in the past, but I, I find that if I don't keep repeating myself, it it uh, uh, it doesn't uh, sink in. You know, I guess most of us are that way in in one way or another. But uh, one of the things that I have talked about in the past is how you should own your vehicle. And, the, and quite frankly, it's because of how quirky the laws are in North Carolina. And so uh, what's quirky about? Well, first of all, uh, North Carolina is what's called a contributory negligent state. It's actually, there are very few states uh, that are still contributory negligent states. And what that means is is that if someone injures you in, the, in their negligence, but you were also negligent, even to a small degree, even though the other person was really and truly responsible and was 95% negligent, but you had a small part in it. Well, in North Carolina, if you had a small part in it, you were contributorily negligent, then you cannot effectively sue the other party. So that's uh, that's a big difference from most from many states where it's comparative negligence uh, or it's no fault or the like. And then you had add on to that in North Carolina an old court of appeals case that basically ruled that if you are a co-owner or the owner of a vehicle and you're in the passenger seat, then by your ownership, you are 
controlling or at least contributing to the control of the driver. You got it? So what now, when you combine those two things together, it means that how you own your motor vehicle in North Carolina can be very important to you. Okay, so um, in essence, I, I tell folks uh, and I, uh, that it's very important to not co-own your vehicle. Now, the reason this falls on deaf ears is, <laughs> is because that's not the norm for married folks. Uh, you know, you go buy a car and you're married, uh, the likelihood of the dealer assuming that it's going in both names, and oftentimes you go to the dealership together, you know, and, and it's not about, well, who's going to drive this car? It's, okay, well, we'll put it in both names. And most people think that's perfectly fine. Uh, and it is one way to own your vehicle, but it's not the best way to own the vehicle. All right, so why is that important? Well, here's the, here's the problem. If, and, and this has to do with asset protection and insurance protection for yourself. Number one, if your spouse is negligent and, you know, has an accident, and you're the passenger, even though you had nothing to do with the accident, um, you know, you're, you, you tell your spouse all the time, don't do this, don't do that, you know, that's just the way spouses are. Uh, <laughs> but, the, the, but we, of course, ignore all that and keep doing what we've always done. Uh, that's just the way we are. So the, the fact is, though, when an accident occurs, if the, if the vehicle is co-owned, you know, I have found that lawyers tend to sue everybody, anybody that has any type of potential connection because they're looking for uh, a greater potential for liability, greater places to find uh, property to collect uh, a judgment from and the like. So guess what? If your spouse is negligent but you co-own the vehicle, the likelihood of you being named in the lawsuit as as a defendant, as a co-defendant, if you will, is extremely high. Okay. Now, if the plaintiff, if the person who was injured gets a judgment against both of you instead of one, guess what? That puts all your bank accounts and it puts your um, home at risk. Now, you know, North Carolina is what's called a tenants by the entirety state. So that means if you're a husband and wife owning your real estate together, that's a protected uh, ownership uh, against creditors of one of you. But it's not a protected ownership if, if there's a judgment against both of you. You see the difference? So if, if you don't co-own the vehicle and your spouse runs in and creates a lot of, of uh, liability and you're not on that title and, and you had nothing to do with the, uh, with the accident, then guess what? The lawyer doesn't have the ability to sue you and a, a, law, a judgment against one of you doesn't get them in, uh, with the ability to put a lien on your home uh, in terms of collecting that judgment. So. 
guess what? That's important. But there's another reason at that your vehicle should not be owned together, and that has to do with your um, insurance, with your own insurance. And of course, if you own a vehicle separately from your spouse, then you can still have everything insured under one policy, just as if you owned it together. That part doesn't matter. Uh, and so the uh, and I'm not and yes, I always say buy the most liability insurance that you can, which allows you to buy the most underinsured and uninsured motorist coverage that you can. That is to protect you more than others. Yes, it protects you from your own mistakes. And of course, I always say get umbrella insurance as well, because that protects you uh, to a greater level uh, than a typical automobile policy. But the truth is, most of my clients are good drivers. And, and what does that mean? It means that it's more likely that an idiot's going to run into you than it is that you're going to run into them. And the problem is, is that there's a high percentage of drivers out there that have either no insurance, that's illegal, of course, in North Carolina, but there's still a lot of folks who drive illegally, uh, or they have minimum coverage. And if they injure you, their coverage is not going to take care of your bills. So it's your own policy that does that. But then between you and your spouse, there's another issue. And that here, here it is. If you're a passenger and your spouse runs into the tree and you're, you are injured, if you co-own the vehicle, you cannot collect anything on your insurance as it relates to his or her negligence and your injuries. However, if the principal driver owns the vehicle by him or herself, and you're the passenger and you're injured, you can in fact collect from your insurance. In essence, you can sue your spouse, not for divorce, but for your personal injuries that were created in the automobile accident. Uh, and of course, uh, that is very meaningful to you because it makes your insurance policy more protective of you, and it doesn't cost any more it's simply the way you own your policy, and that's based on what? The fact that North Carolina is very quirky when it comes to how you own your vehicle and how your insurance works and how asset protection works for you. So don't own your vehicles together. The principal driver should be the owner of the vehicle. That's great advice. And that is a quirky law is that's something that I'm sure a lot of folks listening are surprised about. And these are the type of tips that you can hear in Bill's asset protection and trust seminar. He does this the second Wednesday of every month. In addition to his seminar dealing with long term care assistance, government assistance, dealing with Medicaid and veterans benefits. These are extremely, extremely educational and they're free to attend, free to register. All you have to do is go to WGA law.com and click on the seminars button we're taking a quick break but we'll be back with more this is asset protection today with attorney bill alexander and we will be right back
Welcome back to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander. You can find more about him online anytime at WGALaw.com. WGALaw.com. I am Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. And Bill, we've gone over a, a set of quirky laws and a uh, reason why we should make sure that we have our vehicles titled in the right way because it, it could end up costing us some money down the line. Well, it gives you greater protection if you do it right. No question about it. Okay, so what's another one? Well, North Carolina has some pretty quirky laws relating to a last will and testament. You know, if you move to North Carolina from another state, it's really important to have your documents reviewed and oftentimes changed, updated, to comply with North Carolina law. I've seen many, many wills, last wills and testaments, created in other states that don't pass muster in North Carolina because of our quirky laws. Okay, so there there are a couple things uh, as to why North Carolina is a little bit different. And, of course, you find this in from state to state. I mean, when... I will say it's more likely that a North Carolina will will pass muster in another state, but maybe not because they have quirky laws too. So if you move from North Carolina, you should do the same thing and have your legal documents reviewed by a good attorney in the new state that you uh, are moving to. But okay, what makes North Carolina quirky? Well, North Carolina does require some magic language. And if the magic language is not in your will, then it's not going to be okay. <laughs> it's not going to be probated by the clerk of superior court. And what magic language are we talking about? Well, in North Carolina, the uh, testator, the person creating the will, um, must acknowledge in their document, uh, in the paper writing, in the will, that they are over 18 years of age, of sound mind, and not under undue influence. Those are magic magic words. And if they're not in there, then it's likely that the clerk is not going to probate your will. In other words, you're going to die without a will, even though you tried. <laughs> okay. So that is very uh, important that now, of course, there are other things that are important about how a will is executed, and this is not unusual. I won't say it's quirky, but if you don't have at least two witnesses, then your will's not going to stand up. And, of course, the other thing is that everybody has to be together at the same time and sign at, in essence, watching each other sign. You, you can't take your will and sign it yourself and then take it to your neighbor's house and have one neighbor sign and then take it to your other neighbor's house and then have them sign. That is an improper, invalid execution of the document. And of course, if you want to make it easy, then you should have what's called a self-probating will. And that's where, uh, and I have, I rarely see any will executed today that's not self-probating proving. And what that means is there's a notary involved as well who, and then again, your you, your witnesses, and the notary have to all be together and execute at the same time. Uh, and if you don't have that, then you're 
really lost. I, I, I saw just a, a couple weeks ago, somebody brought me a will from another state, and it was an old one, and they acknowledged it was old, but they didn't realize it wasn't self-proving. And so we're talking about having to have witnesses uh, from another state come to the clerk's office and acknowledge the signature. And, of course, the, the fact the signatures, uh, the witnesses were long gone. So that will, there, there was no way, even though it was valid, could have been probated because there was nobody to come or acknowledge that they saw the, the testator sign the will. So those kind of things were important. But what about other things relating to your will? Because, you know, we've got a lot of quirky things going on. Well, one thing that folks would not even know about is a rule in North Carolina that basically says that if your will is silent, then the will exercises by operation of law any power of appointment that you have been granted. And, you know, there are a lot of documents, trusts, that uh, uh, basically give uh, a person powers of appointment over property. And so a good will that is drafted should always say that I do not exercise uh, any power of appointment that I may have been granted, or words to that effect. If not, then your will could end up doing things that you have no intention of your will actually doing. And the fact is, most folks, uh, even a lot of lawyers, have no clue what a power of appointment is and how important it is. Now, when I draft a trust, I specifically exclude uh, powers of appointment being um, exercised by operation of law. In other words, my trusts always require a power of appointment to be specifically and personally exercised. Uh, and I always use the language and, and not by operation of law. Because in North Carolina, unlike most states, it would otherwise be exercised by a will that is silent on the power of appointment. And I know that what I just said is glossing over folks and is going, I have no clue what he's saying. And, and if you don't, obviously. But it's important to understand that that's a, a quirk in North Carolina law and can have significant impact on, on uh, your estate plan and how things are distributed uh, to your uh, children. Because particularly as a will conflicts with a trust, it can have a huge impact that's unintended. Um, uh, so obviously, from my own perspective, it means that the folks who are doing your trust have to understand these quirky laws too. Now, North Carolina also is a little different from most states as it relates to how real estate passes through an estate. And so in North Carolina, unlike most states, your real estate passes through your will, or if you don't have a will, through intestacy to your family or, or to whomever you want it to go to, uh, assuming you have a valid will. Um, but it goes outside of court administration. 
So what, what that means is, for instance, let's say that your will says, uh, I give, devise, and bequeath my home or my farm or my whatever real estate to uh, my children, period. That's it. Okay. Now, what that means is that once the will is probated, that real estate belongs to your children right then and there. You know, in other words, there's not a, in other words, you can acquire real estate by inheritance, either through a will or intestacy, uh, or through a trust, or you can acquire real estate via a deed. Okay, in other words, where you buy property or someone transfers it to you by deed. So either way, you can own real estate. But the point is, is that the real estate is not included in your probate estate unless you owe money to people and creditors where the personal property, the money in the estate, is insufficient to pay those creditors. At that point, the executor would reach out and get a court order from the clerk of Superior Court to bring the real estate in to the estate in order to sell it so that money could be provided to pay for creditors. Now, that can be really important for you to understand because what that means is, let's say there are not creditors. What's the biggest issue for the children in terms of, of taking care of things? Okay, so now they own the house, and guess what? The house has issues. The house has to be secured. The house has utilities to pay. The house has taxes and insurance that has to be paid. And more often than not, the house needs to be sold. So guess what? you got some fix-up fix expenses to take care of. And, you know, most people think wrongly that you can use the money in the estate to pay for these expenses. Well, guess what? If you have not put in your will a direct to tell the executor to to uh, sell the property uh, as part of the estate. If you haven't done that, then your children have to create a fund on their own to pay these bills. In other words, to, to pay the utility bills, to pay whatever needs to be paid, because guess what? You might want to be able to sell the house several months after the parent's death, but the estate doesn't close for a year. So uh, the bottom line is the children have to fork up the money out of their own account in order to take care of the house. And that can be very difficult on families at times. Now, not everybody has problems, but oftentimes this is a, a significant issue uh, for the family to, to deal with, and it's because North Carolina law as it relates to real estate, is a little quirky when it comes to that. Uh, it can be advantageous in terms of reducing the expense to the estate, uh, in terms of what the clerk gets, if you will, the court costs. But at the same time, it also can make it much more difficult on a family in order to uh, get everything resolved after a death. 
That is why it's so important to have the guidance of a professional. If you have some documents that uh, you moved, you had done out of state and you moved here and they haven't been reviewed in some time, schedule an appointment to speak with Bill. Go to WGALaw.com. There you can schedule an appointment to talk to Bill. You can also register for Bill's seminars dealing with long-term care assistance as well as asset protection and trust planning. They are free to attend very educational. You'll learn plenty of things about all these items and uh, you'll get the chance to ask questions of Bill as well. If you've been listening to this program for some time and you've had questions about some of the things that Bill talks about, seminars are a chance to pick Bill's mind and get some answers. Go to WGALaw.com, click on that seminars button. It is free to register for the next set of seminars. You can call the office 919-256- 7,000. A quick break and back with more. This is Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander, and we will be right back. You are listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. His website is Law. That's where you can schedule an appointment to speak with Bill, and you can also register for Bill's seminars covering the topics of long-term care assistance, dealing with Medicaid and veterans benefits, and another seminar dealing with asset protection and trust planning, some of the the subjects that we're discussing on today's program. Go to WGALaw.com to find out more and to register to attend those seminars for free. Bill, you know, on the subject of asset protection, we were just talking a little bit about real estate, and that's, that's one of the first things that I think we tend to think of with asset protection. Well, no no question about it. And, and quite frankly, it's important to us. I mean, uh, many of us uh, are very obstinate about wanting to stay in our home until we die, okay, whether that's good or bad. And we can talk about that, but that's but the fact is uh, that when, when a person dies, particularly a uh, second spouse, if you will, um, and there is a home to take care of, uh, your home at your death becomes one of the hardest things for a family to deal with. All right, they're actually, from my perspective, this day and age, uh, there, there are two things that can be really difficult when a, when a person dies. I mean, there are a lot of things that are difficult, but two are, two are the biggies, okay? So um, the one is simply figuring out where everything is. Far more difficult today than it was in years past. Why? Because in years past, uh, all you had to do was uh, look in the filing cabinet for all the past statements or wait a month and get them in the mail. Today, guess what? Your bank accounts, your investment accounts, your retirement accounts, all of that stuff doesn't come in the mail anymore or very rarely comes in the mail. Where is it? It's online. And so now digital assets are something that you have to understand how to get access to. So guess what that means? That means you got to know passwords. you got to know usernames and passwords. And, you know, the fact is, is that when a person dies, they can't come back and tell you, oh, don't look over here. This is where my usernames and passwords are. Uh, In essence, whoever is responsible for taking care of the estate 
has to know that information in advance. And of course, guess what? We're told to keep all that stuff secret. <laughs> so the fact is we need to be able to trust somebody to be able to keep that information for us. And this is not quirky law. This is, this is true everywhere because it's far more difficult to make sure we know where everything is in order to collect it and distribute it properly. So uh, it's becoming much more important. And, of course, there are a lot of folks that have more than one bank account. It's not unusual to have at least two different bank accounts because one spouse is used to being in one bank or credit union and the other one uses a different uh, bank. Uh, I try to get seniors to simplify their life, use one bank, use one investment advisor, those kind of things. But fo- more, most folks don't. Most folks have more than one investment advisor, whether they're doing it themselves or not. And most people have more than one bank. They'll have a CD out in Idaho for, you know, for whatever. And so it's extremely important to have a listing. And if, and if, if you're not an engineer or an accountant or married to one, it probably means you're disorganized. <laughs> and when it comes to an estate and knowing where, you're pay, you, you know, where everything is, a disorganization does not help. So it's, it's the kind of thing where this is where you have to get that information in advance. It's so, so important. Okay, but let's go back to the real estate issue. The other piece that's really important and extremely difficult is dealing with the house. And, of course, um, what that basically means is that um, you have to keep the utility zones for the most part. You have to secure it. Hopefully you're in the house very quickly and can make sure that the most valuable things are taken out of the house because guess what? That vacant house is now, uh, everybody knows about it in the neighborhood and the criminals have seen the obituary and they're, they know they can find out where the house is and, and that house is now a target. And the another issue that comes along is if the house is going to be vacant for very long, uh, which is not unusual. Now, if there's somebody in the family that can move in there temporarily uh, so that it's occupied, that's helpful. But a lot of folks don't realize that when a person dies and a house becomes vacant, that your homeowner's insurance goes away very quickly depending on the policy. Now, uh, initially, when people are in and out, and uh, you know, f- during the funeral, and people are actually staying there uh, rather than the hotel, those kind of things, um, uh, it, it's not an issue. But w- once people go home, and there's nobody living in the house, your homeowner's insurance may not be valid anymore uh, because uh, policies basically say that after X number of days, if the house is vacant. Uh, then your homeowner's insurance is invalid. The insurance company will return the premium to you rather than covering the uh, the total loss in a fire or the like. And so you have to convert your homeowner's insurance to a fire insurance policy. And fire insur- you'll find that the fire insurance policy covers a lot less and is more expensive than your homeowner's insurance. So but it's, it is an issue that people need to recognize. Now, 
obviously, um, after assuming that you've secured the house, you've gotten the valuables out to the degree that you can, then it's a matter of, okay, what are you going to do with it? I mean, is it going to be rented? Hope not. Is it going to be sold? Uh, likely. So now you have to figure out, okay, what do I do? Do I sell it as is? Do I put some money into it and try to get the best price possible? Um, it, it, does a family member want to buy it? How are we going to distribute all this stuff? Um, but And that, to me, it, that's the physical labor, and it's hard unless you have a lot of cooperative people helping you and and where you're you're trying to avoid family fights over sentimental objects because uh, people can fight over the weirdest things and <laughs> you know mama's candy dish or whatever it is um, and so uh, obviously it, it takes fairness uh, it takes uh, it being equitable and it takes following the directions of the decedent and you know, in terms of the will uh, dictating. And so guess what? you got to find the will pretty fast. <laughs> and it's got to be the original will. And sometimes a will's going to surprise you in terms of who gets what. And so you, you, it, this is not the time that you make an assumption unless you already know what's in, in the will. And if you're the person responsible for it, <clears throat> then guess what? You're a whole lot better off if you've had some very deep conversations knowing where, where things are at, knowing what you will need to do, uh, and you, you get this down while your loved one is still alive because it's so much more difficult after a person dies to figure out where you are and what you have to do. Very well said, and that's why it's so important to have those conversations ahead of time. Get your planning done ahead of time. If you want to speak with Bill or if you want to attend his seminars, go to WGA Law. Com. From there, you can book an appointment to speak with Bill. You can also register for his seminars covering asset protection and trust planning, as well as long-term care assistance. Go to WGALaw.com and click on that seminars button. A quick break and back with more. This is Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander. Find more about him online at WGALaw.com, WGALaw.com. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. And Bill, we're in a groove here talking about real estate, so let's let's keep on that track. Well, um, you know, most of us, uh, the majority of seniors, uh, knee-jerk, basically, uh, want to stay home uh, even when it's not in their best interest. Uh, and so I, I want to talk about, in essence, the costs of moving versus the costs of not moving, okay? And it varies with every person in terms of their situation, their wealth, uh, their health, uh, makes a big, big difference in terms of enjoying life and the like. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I'm very quick to recommend to a lot of widows and widowers, uh, particularly when they get older, and by older I mean late 70s, early 80s, 
uh, moving from a home uh, to an independent living community where they will be in a much safer environment where the children won't be worried about them having a fall and suffering for days before somebody finds them uh, and, and the like. Uh, also, it's uh, more pleasant. You know, if you can afford it, it's a far more pleasant lifestyle where most of your meals are provided and you have a safe environment. And and one of the, the things a lot of folks don't realize is the fact that Folks who go to an independent living community are far less likely to ever have to move to an assisted living community. Yes, uh, but I mean, you can stay independent far longer uh, without going to assisted living. And it's also much less expensive to add on assistance where somebody helps you with your medication or they help you with your bath or they help you with dressing in the morning or the like, far less expensive to do it at an independent living community than in your own home. And the reason for that's real easy. If you're at your home where they have to come to you, there's generally a three or four hour minimum charge. So if all you need is 30 minutes assistance in the morning, getting up and getting dressed and the like, uh, you're going to pay for four hours instead of a, or 30 minutes. But if you're in an independent living community, then you can get that service already. Now, the other thing, too, is that a lot of seniors can't afford to keep a house up. In other words, the, the inflation, uh, they have fixed income, and their house is owned, but they can barely pay for the insurance and the utilities and the taxes on the house because their money's just not going very far. So they can't fix the toilet, and they can't fix the leaking uh, faucet, and they can't uh, repair this or that. And so guess what? Over time, the house gets into disarray because any homeowner knows you got to keep putting money into a house to keep it up. And seniors are the worst because of financial concerns where they feel like they're running out of money. And so their house... It, it, you know, to again, this is where seniors are really putting an additional burden on their family by staying at home. Now, for those who can afford to, to stay at home and they want to, sometimes it's more expensive to move because moving is expensive. And so moving just to downsize, you know, in other words, stay in the same neighborhood, stay in the same community, go to the same church, you know, that sort of thing. Typically, for those who can, uh, typically it's more expensive to move than to stay put. Uh, particularly if you're in good, sufficient health to be, to be independent at home, because moving has a lot of costs associated with it. And uh, if you move to downsize, guess what? Your furniture isn't going to fit in your new place, so you end up having to buy new drapes. You have to new, buy new. Uh, new uh, blinds, new furniture, and when you add the cost of all of the additional stuff you got to have that your old furniture doesn't work, then it becomes that much more expensive in terms of moving. But uh, And the other mistake that seniors make oftentimes is they sell their house, and let's say they're uh, 80 years old, they sell their house to move closer to their grandchildren, and they buy another house. Now, 
most people know that you're not going to be able to uh, it's not going to be an investment that's worthwhile if you uh, have to sell that house within five years. Well, if you're 80 years old and you're buying a new house, the likelihood of your being able to stay in that house for more than five years is fairly slim because people get sick or they die. And guess what? It makes it far more difficult. So it's, it, there's, there's a lot involved, but you need to, to think about the end, have the end in mind, if you will. And, and sometimes moving to an apartment or moving to an independent living community, uh, particularly if you're moving towards your grandchildren and the like, it is a much smarter move for most people. Doing a full financial analysis is what can help you make that decision because there are some costs that most people kind of overlook, as you said, Bill, when they want to downsize. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be back with more. This is Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander, and we will be right back. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander. Don't forget, if you want to register for Bill's seminars, go to WGALaw.com. It's free to register, free to attend. These are in the form of webinars. All you need is a computer or smartphone with Internet access and an email address, and you're good to go. You can learn about long-term care assistance that Bill talks often about, as well as asset protection and trust planning, some of the items that we discussed in detail today. Go to WGALaw.com. Click on that Seminars button to register. And as we said to start off the program, we hope you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, and we hope that you're back here with us next weekend as well. Thank you so much for listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. Have a wonderful